Welcome back. We're on a hunt for the real unicorns, the companies which are impacting a billion people positively. We profile some of the world's biggest impact investors and the visionary founders that are making a difference in our world. Listeners will have the option to vote or invest in their favorite ventures and get behind their missions as we share the struggles, the passions, and the challenges they overcome. In this episode, Cassandra talks to Mark Kupta. Mark is a managing director with Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm with $1.6 billion under management, partnering with entrepreneurs to address climate change. Since 2013, Prelude has invested in over 60 companies across advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Prelude manages capital exclusively for Simon's family philanthropic entities and is a founding member of the Breakthrough Energy Coalition. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to Mark Kupta, Managing Director of Prelude Ventures. I know Prelude is based in San Francisco. Are you dialing in from there today, Mark? How is San Francisco treating you? Great to be here. San Francisco is treating me well. We are fighting some of the similar heat waves that are going around the world right now, but sometimes it's a welcome thing in San Francisco that can be cold in, in June and July. And so it's a beautiful day today and excited to be talking with you. I love to start with this question because this podcast is all about you. It is all about the venture firm that you work for. You've taken quite an interesting path to get to this level in venture capital. Our listeners would love to hear your investor story. How did it start? Yeah, it's always fun to talk about this and particularly around venture capital because it's such a variety of different ways to get into this industry. And, you know, we all feel like we're a little bit unique in our path in getting to this place, but mine is maybe a little bit more atypical than most. I started off my career as a chemical and biomolecular engineer. So I got an advanced degree in that field and spent about a decade working for large Fortune 500 companies always on innovation teams, mostly working on material science. And my general theme was, how do I take materials? How do I take the inputs that go into all the different things that we use in medical and aerospace, automotive applications, energy applications, and how do I make them better by the things that make them up? And so it was a really fun start to my career, but I got increasingly frustrated over time as the things that I wanted to do were real step change innovations. And working for big Fortune 500, maybe sometimes sleepier companies, the things they want to do is typically squeezing a lemon as dry as it possibly could be. And so I had the privilege of being able to present different projects to the board directors of these companies. And after my third or fourth thing that got killed, I decided, okay, this isn't for me. I need to switch to something that's truly entrepreneurial and innovative and applied to business school as a career reset, went to Stanford in California and used that time to really explore venture capital and entrepreneurship. So I worked for uh, corporate venture capital firms. I worked for some startups. Once I started getting in the flywheel during my second year of business school, I spent all of my free time that I could working for two different venture capital firms, being you know sort of eyes and ears on the West Coast, doing some extra diligence work. My technical background worked really well for people that were doing deep tech and clean tech at the time. So I was focused in those two different areas. And one of those two firms I was working for was the precursor of Prelude Ventures. At the time, it was still a family office and the venture firm was getting spun up. And so 
I got connected to those guys and really was empowered by the, the mission and what they were trying to build in a time where clean tech was just starting to go out of favor. And so post-business school, I joined them as an associate, and that was in 2013. And I've been with them for the last nine years, and I'm one of the managing partners of the fund now. Prelude has been around for quite a while, which is an amazing achievement in itself. Let's learn a little bit more about the fund. What is your investment thesis? What stage do you tend to invest at? And in which geography? Yeah, we are first and foremost a climate tech fund. So everything that we do, the first thing that we look at with a company as we're screening a deal is we say, can this company, the business model, the technology, the approach to what they're trying to solve, can it have a meaningful impact reducing greenhouse gas emissions? If we can check that box, and it it is basically a conversation with our partnership saying, what kind of impact would this have? We then put that aside and say, is this a massive business? Because at the end of the day, we are venture capitalists. We are trying to make a return for our investors, but we are also trying to have a big impact on our mission, which is climate change. And those two things are fundamentally linked together in our view. By that, I mean you cannot have a large climate change impact without restructuring nearly every single macroeconomic value chain on the planet. And that means you have to create enormously profitable businesses that are more efficient, better products, easier to use, whatever it might be for those different value chains to be able to solve this problem. Because it is carbon and carbon-related emissions are embedded into every single value chain. And if you're providing a solution that it has more frictions, it is costlier, it is inferior, you're going to scale slowly and you're going to have less of an impact. And so that's why we screen for, for climate, but we invest behind scale and profitability and the ability to really take over what is a lot of the things that we make, use, and do around the planet. And so with that in mind, we are an early stage venture capital firm. We typically like to invest at Series A, that's our wheelhouse, call it a $10 million average check, but that stretches from five to 15 million, typically first money in. We also have a seed stage strategy, probably about 20 to 25% of what we do will be seed stage investing. That's sort of one to $5 million in earlier stage companies, of course. And then because of the way we've structured our fund, which is not a typical 10-year fund, we actually have a 15-year life fund. And we've done that purposefully because we believe some of the things that we're investing in, the heavy infrastructure, the fundamental materials, the building blocks of of all the things that I I discuss in agriculture and in energy, transportation, mobility, consumer products, advanced computing, manufacturing and material science, all of these things typically take a little bit longer than an app or a pure software type of program we may want to build or develop. And so we want our fund to be aligned with the journey of our portfolio companies. And so we have this 15-year fund that has extra reserves and has the ability to either maybe go a little bit later, so sometimes we will lead a Series B as well, or it is structured to be able to continue to support companies over a long haul. And so we don't just invest the seed in day and then back off. Our strategy is to be get in early, be active, take board seats, and then support and keep our pro rata or more a lot longer than a typical fund to be able to help companies along that journey. And, and geography-wise, are you focused more on the U.S. or across the globe? 
We are mainly focused in North America. That is a bit based off of our team is only a team of eight managing about 1.6 billion in capital right now. And so that's a lot of money for a small number of people. And if we stretched ourselves globally, we might not be able to have the same impact we would be able to have on startups in North America. We know this market well in North America. We know the players, we know the ecosystem, we know the legal structure. We can be really helpful. As I invest internationally, my network gets weaker. My ability to have an impact gets gets a little bit weaker and, and it's just a little bit harder for a smaller team to manage. That being said, the a deal that I'm working on right now, the next deal I close hopefully next week will be in Australia. So we don't have any restrictions to what it is that we do. It is a little bit more of that's where our network is and that's where our expertise is right now. It is in is in mostly the United States, but also Canada as well. There are a lot of climate tech funds popping up right now. It's becoming a little bit more competitive for VCs out there. Prelude has been around for quite some time now. I wanted to ask, what makes your fund special? How do you keep ahead of the game? What is your differentiator? Yeah, I think if I was to answer it succinctly, it's hard. I don't like to typically talk too much about, about ourselves. I'm a little bit more of a humble person with this. But if I was to say the competitive advantage is we've seen multiple cycles of clean tech and climate tech. And I think that is a significant advantage for our investment partners, our entrepreneurs, and our our investors. And the reason I say it's a significant advantage is when we started Prelude, climate tech was about a one to two billion dollar a year asset. And you know the data can be can vary from from different sources, but we believe that the entire space has grown by about 25 to 30 X over the last nine years since we started the fund. And so there's a lot more capital, a lot more money flowing the space, a lot more investors, as you as you mentioned. But a lot of the people who have started recently have only seen boom times in this, and they haven't seen the challenging side of, of this. And so our ability to see and recognize where there are really interesting opportunities, but also understanding what it takes to build businesses over the long term in good and bad times, I think is a really good differentiator. And it is something that I find myself when I'm talking to, to newer investors in this space, it, it, it's something they pay attention to as well. And, and they like to partner with us because of that knowledge base. You've been personally involved in forging deals with some incredible startups since you started at Prelude. Talk to us about some of the fantastic ventures that you've backed so far. What drew you to these startups? What makes these ventures so special? Yeah, what's interesting about climate tech is it's not a singular sector, right? So I spend my day hopping back and forth between construction companies, agriculture companies, quantum computing companies, energy companies. And so I I jump around a lot, but there are different cross-cutting themes that I like to apply to the companies that I invest in that I think I can have an outsized impact on helping them then grow and realize their potential, which is because of my background in, in biology and material science, because of my prior work in figuring out what are the inputs, what are the things that the building blocks of all the things that we make, do, and use on the planet, and how can I make those better? A lot of what climate tech fundamentally is, is fixing inputs into all these different value chains. And so how do I fix the electrons? How do I fix steel and cement? How do I fix fertilizer? How do I fix plastics and make them from a a biological source? All these different things are really, really important to decarbonizing our planet. And so that's the general thing that I like to do as an investor. And so 
you know, there's a couple companies I can call out that sort of embody that general theme of decarbonizing inputs into major value chains. The first one I'll talk about is a company called Pivot Bio out of Berkeley, California. They are focused on biological fertilizer. What they have unlocked is one of the holy grail challenges of agriculture, which is how do you turn a cereal crop, that being corn, wheat, rice, sorghum, into a nitrogen-fixing crop. That means the plant takes nitrogen out of the air and makes its own fertilizer through its roots in association with microbes, with bacteria, or other types of uh, single-cell organisms. And so what is interesting about this approach is this is what we have. If you ever planted clover in your yard or if you ever heard soy and legumes, uh, peanuts are another example of these are plants that, that do fix their own nitrogen. They do fertilize that themselves. And if you can turn cereal crops into that same thing, you could have a massive, massive disruption on how fertilizer is distributed and used around the planet. What's interesting about Pivot Bio is, yes, it can have a really big climate impact. About 3 to 4% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from producing fertilizer and ammonia. But it is a better product. It's a cheaper product. It's an easier product to use. And it's more climate resilient. And so to go through those different things, the cost of production of this product is about an order of magnitude or more less than your typical fertilizer production. It is a more resilient product. By that, I mean it works even if you have heavy weather pressure. Either really hot environments can cause nitrogen to leach out of your field, or if you have heavy rains, it washes out. Anybody searches for nitrogen or ammonia blooms, you will see things in the Gulf of Mexico or other places where you've had fertilizer runoff causing these massive algal blooms. That's wasted fertilizer that should be in the field. It should be feeding a corn plant, but it's found its way into the water system and out, which is lost revenue, lost productivity, and a huge environmental impact. And microbes would not have that problem. And then third, I said it makes it a job easier. Timing fertilizer, when do you apply it? How do you apply it for a grower, for a farmer is a really tough thing. It takes a little bit of art and science in that. Uh, if you have a microbe that's spoon feeding a plant uh, fertilizer throughout a season, you don't need to worry about that. And so it sort of, I could take a worry off of the back of a, of a farmer about what, what I do, how much I put down, when I put it down. And so when you combine a cheaper product, a better product, a more resilient product, and a product that makes somebody lazier have to worry less, it grows really, really quickly. And so Pivot Bio is one of the fastest growing ag tech companies in North America. And it's one of the fastest practice change companies in all of agriculture that we've seen since Roundup Ready. And so it's really interesting and there are a whole host of other companies trying to solve this problem as well. So I think this is an area for people to watch out, which generally will be called biological fertilizer. I and mean, I think Pivot Bio is the leader and the leading company in that space right now. So another one I, I wanted to highlight in keeping with the theme of fixing inputs is, is steel. Steel is about 7 to 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So a huge challenge for us to decarbonize. And it is an issue that fundamentally in the manufacturing of steel inherently just emits CO2. To make steel, we combine iron ore that we mine out of the earth with coal, and that produces iron. It's called pig iron, the, the, the metal, and then we, we further manufacture that into steel. And the, the result of that process of, the, of using coal, the pure carbon, is CO2 because we are basically reacting the iron oxide with, with carbon making CO2. So how do you fix that? One way is you could potentially absorb and suck the CO2 out of the flue stacks, out of the air, what we call carbon capture. That's a 
possible, but it's a, it's a costly, at least right now, and, and not the most efficient way to do this. What you'd want to do is solve for the carbon equation. If there's not carbon in the production of steel, you can't have CO2. What this company that we've invested in out of Boston called Boston Metal is trying to electrify steel production. And so what that means is how do you apply what almost feels like a liquid molten battery type uh, approach, but how do you have a molten crucible? So you still have that same big massive furnace that you picture when you're making steel, but instead of adding coal to that, you add electrons and you directly, what they call reduce the iron oxide to iron ore, and you evolve oxygen instead of CO2. And this process is used in, in metal production in aluminum, but nobody's ever figured out how to do it in steel. Steel is a, a harder metal to make. It is uh, higher temperatures. It is more challenging environment. And this company out of Boston, a spin out of MIT, figured out a way to do it. And they are currently producing steel in Boston and down in Brazil. What's interesting about this is you'll see some very similar themes to what I talked about with Pivot Bio, which is it is a cheaper CapEx product to make. It is a lower cost product than the coal methodology because you're directly reducing the iron versus having to go through an intermediate like coal. It is better for the environment. And more importantly, it can be made more modular. So you can actually produce steel instead of having these massive, massive facilities. You could still do a big facility with Boston Metal. But it has the capability to scale down and still be really cost effective. So if you think about you know, having more local production, bringing back steel production to environments that are around where the consumption is versus having to ship it all over the world, something like Boston Metal can help enable that. It also has the benefit of tailwinds in the energy side, much like electric vehicles, which as you decarbonize the electron, your electric vehicle gets better for the environment. The same thing would happen with Boston Metal. As you have zero carbon electricity, which is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because solar and wind are the cheapest energy on the planet right now, that then makes the product cheaper coming out of that, but it also makes it greener over time. And so you have these really natural tailwinds and these natural business fundamentals behind a company like this that helps it scale. And it's interesting to see the reaction from steel and mining companies, which we have a number of them who are investors in Boston Metal, seeing the inevitability of decarbonization of steel and seeing that this is a great way to solve that problem. It's still the Series B stage, raising Series C this year. So you know there's still some ways to go to get to full commercialization. It is, in fact, steel, the largest commodity metal that we make on this planet by, by far. But I'm pretty excited about their future and their potential. Obviously, you come across hundreds of new companies every month. You must have quite a bit of inbound. But what's your approach to scouting? How do you strategically weave your way through all the noise to connect with the most promising ventures? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it evolves and changes over time. We sort of started off this this conversation with talking about my journey into venture capital, but you have a similar journey within venture capital and doing this also for about 10 years. And so when you are a young, just getting started venture capitalist, your main goal, other than supporting your, your partners and your firm, is building your network and building your investment theses. And those two things go hand in hand. And so a lot of your work and a lot of my work for the first half of my career was very, very much outbound. You are out hunting, trying to find, track down interesting people, but it was very much like, I have to do my own research. I have to get out there. I've got to build investment theses. I got to sound intelligent. I got to sound smart. I got to know what I'm talking about to be able to get in front of interesting people, to be able to get on, on stage, on panels, be able to be recognized 
to be able to build that network over time. And then what's really the mark of a, of a partner, in my opinion, or one of the good marks of a partner in a firm is when the deal flow flips to inbounds. And I would say 80 to 90% of what I look at today are deals that come through my trusted network and the people that I've worked with over the past decade. And so that is the best way to get into and get into me or really most partners is go through somebody's trusted network on that behalf because that's the majority of deals that we do look like that. And so, but it is all about networking up and downstream within venture. So I want to to know every single accelerator, seed stage investor that are in my space. I spend time at universities. I spend time at national labs, so at different conferences. So I, I still do all of that work to, to keep that network fresh, to see what's going on. Because I'm always looking at new areas, new technologies, new verticals. And so you never stop developing theses. You never stop learning. You never stop you know, building out your, your network. And so that is a significant portion of my time. I'm constantly doing that to help enable the inbound deal flow that comes to me. 14% of new VC money is going into climate tech and 222 billion was invested in the past decade, 88 billion in the last year. What are your views on the state of climate tech for 2022-23? Well, if you were to ask me this question six months ago, probably the answer would be a little bit different than it is today. It's funny that the global market we're in a little bit of turmoil. We've got a lot of volatility. There's a lot of questions being asked. I just got off a call this morning with some bankers over in New York talking about how nobody has any idea what's going on. Everybody's sort of preparing for the worst. And there's a lot of negative signals out there in the public markets that are trickling down to the private side. That being said, I'm actually feeling pretty good about the momentum in climate tech. There are a lot of new and interested investors, and we still see new funds being raised in this space. There's a lot of market support. I can't think of a major company that doesn't have some sort of climate-related pledge. Some of them are weaker than others, but everybody's talking about it is a ESG, and the E in ESG is a main point of discussion around a lot of the corporates that we, we interact with on a daily basis. And there's a lot of government support. It is uh, and globally, probably better than, than in the U.S., but the U.S. continues to, in particular, a local and state level, have really good support for climate tech. And, and so we view a lot of the things that we invest in as inevitabilities, and I think a lot of people do as well. And so we're feeling pretty good, even in this challenging environment, what 2022 is going to look like for climate tech. You know, I'll rewind a little bit as well, because if I go back to the start of the pandemic, which I think of, at least for, for me in the U.S., in March in 2020, we spent all of April and part of May thinking like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We're we going to have to just stop doing new deals. We can't go visit companies. We're going to have to just pump money into our existing things to keep them alive because it's just going to be a disaster. And holy crap, were we wrong. Like, it was the exact opposite of what we thought it was going to be. 2020 and 2021 were the biggest boom years in climate tech. And in fact, it was, it was a flat out mania. And we were exhausted <laughs> coming out of those two years. It was uh, you know, new deals, high quality entrepreneurs, a lot of money being raised, and, and a lot of competition where previously our space had a lot of collaboration. We started to feel for the first time that venture capital, multiple term sheets, fighting for deals, fighting for allocation. And, and that's actually continued into this year. The second to last deal that we did at the firm, the company had five term sheets. And they chose ours, which was great, but like it, it was a fight. And that kind of stuff gives me a, real, a lot of positivity for where climate tech is going 
is going to go. And and I'm actually a little bit excited about having a little bit of normalcy and, and reset. It is something that's, that's needed because what I was worried about in 2020 and 2021 was repeating some of the mistakes that we made in Cleantech 1.0 in the 2010, 2011 timeframe, which was super high valuations, pumping up companies really fast before they've proven technology, and then having to go back and reset and readjust plans as science is really freaking hard. Infrastructure is really freaking hard. Like All of these things are challenging to be able to scale and grow, and they don't scale and grow at the pace of software. And so you need to not apply software tactics to physical world investments. That's the biggest takeaway from Cleantech 1.0. And I feel like a lot of people were repeating that some sort of mistake combined with different funds that have been raised. I'm really excited what this year and next year brings. I read quite an interesting article by fellow VC Wesley Chan on LinkedIn the other day. His advice to founders was, quote, avoid going out to publicly raise around now if you can. If you have a willing investor who will quietly give you capital at a fair price, take it to shore up your balance sheet. The financial hurricane is here. He said that VCs are not so sure where to price companies given much fewer transactions happening now. So the easy answer to founders looking for capital in this particular market is not now. Would you agree with these statements? Is your fund still deploying capital and actively looking for founders to back right now? Yeah. So I think first and foremost, I would absolutely agree that there is uncertainty and turmoil in the markets right now that is causing some interesting behavior by investors and by entrepreneurs and not knowing exactly what to do, where to benchmark things off of. When you know some of the startups everybody's pegging to in public markets lose 75, 80% of their market cap, you no longer have a great comp out there. And that, that can really hurt your evaluation expectations all, all the way back to early stages. So I, I definitely agree with that comment. The other thing we're coaching all of our startups, like if you can, do not sacrifice growth or value inflection points for it, but take a look at your runway. Ideally, you'd have runway on your base plan through the end of 2023. That's not possible for everybody. In fact, that's, you know, that's not possible for probably a majority of startups to be able to do that, but it's something to, to think and consider. But the only counter I will have to that, and you know, the data is still evolving, but everything I've seen coming out of all the venture capital data sources that we have here at Prelude is that fundraising is getting more bimodal. And by that, I mean, yes, total number of dollars in 2022 will not eclipse 2021, but it's, so far it's trending and looking more like 2020, which is still a really big year. But the delta between capital raised, if you look at averages versus means, is spreading out. That means you have more money going to the top tier companies in spaces and the longer tail of companies are really struggling to raise capital. And so it's a hard conversation. You have to look at yourself. Are you ready to raise? Because if you have a great story, just like I said, we just closed a deal a month ago or just got a signed term sheet a month ago and had five term sheets on it because the company is a top tier company in the space and it got the attention of a lot of people and it has a valuation that made us all feel a little bit uncomfortable, but was acceptable. And so you have to really have self-evaluation. When are you hitting that next major value inflection point? When can you call yourself a leader in a space? Because those are the companies that are able to raise money right now in this type of climate. People pile into quality 
when you have uncertainty. And so the top 20%, the top decile of, of deals are still going to be able to be funded. And if you're not in that space yet, figure out a way to extend your runway, either through cash management or through insider funding to be able to get you to that point where you can tell that story. Wonderful advice, Mark. Our listeners are always hungry for more though. To stand out to an accomplished investor like yourself, what advice would you give startups looking for funding from a fund like Prelude Ventures? I'll keep it specific to climate tech because that's that's the world that I live in. I think one of the things I love to see from entrepreneurs when they're pitching us, when they're selling stories, and it's how I coach my entrepreneurs to go out and tell these types of stories, is when you're trying to have an impact on whatever it is it might be. It might be medical, it might be finance, it might be climate tech. You know, Understand what that impact is, but tell the big story. I think particularly in climate tech, people get hung up on talking about all the impact stuff in the first six, seven slides of a deck are all impact, 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 greenhouse gas emissions. And like that's important to talk about. Like It's what I live. It's what I breathe. It's what I've dedicated my career to. But all of those things are secondary to growing a big business. You can never have a big impact unless you grow a big business. So going back to something I talked about previously, which is you know, how do you say, hey, we, we are a climate tech company. We're doing this. But here is a massive growth story. Here's how we are going to upend an entire value chain with what we're doing. And this is going to result in an enormous impact because we're going to scale and become a multi-billion dollar business, the next Fortune 500 company in this space. And so I, I, I think storytelling is something that is critically important for every entrepreneur and telling that right story about how you balance the thing that you want to do, the thing that you want to achieve, the thing that you're passionate about, and how that grows to be, to be a large business is sometimes lost in some of the things that we see. And I, I always coach my entrepreneurs to to take a look at that. And then uh, along that same lines of storytelling, something that I love to see within entrepreneurs and particularly in times like this, which is you have a strong command over knowledge of what your future looks like in your next fundraise. And so that drives back to, I am hyper-focused on achieving these three to five outcomes from this slug of capital this is why these value inflection points are important. This is why these tailwinds will be important. And then I'm, I always talk about even the next fundraise during the current fundraise, because it gives you confidence that that entrepreneur understands capital formation, that entrepreneur understands value creation, that entrepreneur is forward-looking to the point of saying they're already building the next thing before they accomplish the first. And, and that type of storytelling leads to that big picture thinking that, that I talked about. And those are things that I, I always coach entrepreneurs to, to think about as they are approaching venture capitalists. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure all of the listeners all over the world listening to this right now appreciates it too. I must say I am getting incredibly excited to see what we can accomplish together in this new TV series that we are producing. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there have got some great takeaways, advice, tips, and food for thought based on what you've shared today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and visit our website to tune in to many more founder and investor stories. Head there to back your favorite ventures, which are changing the world with their business models to make a difference. Listeners are encouraged to vote and invest now. Oh,